0: On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Caitlin Garvey, author of The Morning Report, a memoir of her grief journey interviewing six people involved in her mother's dying process. Following her mother's death from breast cancer at the age of 20, Caitlin suffered major depression and anxiety. Through these conversations, Caitlin learns about memory, reflections, and the ways in which our experiences are interpreted and filtered through others' eyes. We also explore the themes of freedom, agency, and authenticity. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. So when I was reading this book, it wasn't clear to me when you actually started the process of writing it. And was it something that was a compilation of, let's say, journal entries along the way while you were conducting your interviews?
1: that's a good question. I started with just conducting an interview on the funeral director for a grad school class. And the, the assignment was just to profile anybody. And then from there, I realized all these themes were coming up that I needed to explore further. And also memories of my mom um, were kind of flooding after I was talking to him. So I was like, let me expand this to other people who are maybe in my mom's sphere or like, people who were involved in her, I guess you could call it a dying process, um, like a hospice worker and people like that. So it was mostly uh, just, I started writing this maybe four years ago um, and finished it, I want to say, and finished it three years ago. Yeah. as my graduate school thesis. And then uh, since then, I've just been editing it and touching
0: wow, it. Wow, I'm so impressed. And and you were able to get it published, too. So <laughs> so let's talk about when you started with your the funeral director. I mean, he's he's one of the last... Is he the last person? Yeah, he's the last one. He's the last person. So how did you decide when you first embarked on this project for school to choose him as the first person to interview?
1: I wanted to do something kind of like bizarre. Um like I, I wanted to interview somebody whose voice I, you know, wouldn't have normally this sounds bad, but wouldn't have normally paid attention to. And he was the closest to my mom's death because he was the embalmer. So I had a lot of flashbacks to that particular moment, like being in his being at the wake and just seeing how he presented the body basically, which sounds morbid, but um I was just I was just curious if it would not only spark memories for me, but also like give me some sort of, I don't know, peace maybe. Um, And so, yeah, so he, I ended up putting him last because I do think it is kind of, well, not chronological, but um, it's, I wanted to end on the idea of like the way we grieve and the rituals we go through and what that says about how we relate to other people.
0: Yeah, I mean if you know now that you've mentioned it in, the, in terms of the, the order of people you've interviewed six people altogether or five sets of people uh, yeah. and yeah. they you start with the most the your hair, the your mom's hairstylist and friend so someone who was most present in her life, right? Mm-hmm. And then you continue on to the family priest and the nurse and the admin at the hospice, the estate planner and then finally with the funeral director so i guess the person who then last connected exactly. with her after exactly. death right so that process so let's let's start with the the first person the hairstylist and your mom's close friend debbie what was interesting to me when you talked about her is the fact that you didn't you didn't go see her or you know you got your hair done by her when you were young and then after your mother's death you didn't you didn't go back Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and was that a conscious decision or unconscious I think it might have been a little bit of both I think I'm I'm
1: I'm a very anxious person and hate getting my hair cut anyway so um, I avoided that for as long as possible but I also think yeah it was a little emotional the idea of like going back to her house she would cut hair in her basement um, and just uh, have all those memories come back
0: yeah. And, you know, I think for just relating it to myself and as a survivor, mm-hmm. that the people with whom I feel the most triggered in a way um, are those with whom I've shared collective trauma. Right, um, right. You know, and I can see how the the ritual of getting your hair done is a positive memory. And mm-hmm. it might have been too painful to to go back and get your hair cut and be reminded of that positive memory.
1: Yeah. And she, and Debbie was also like, she helped my mom pick out a wig um, after she lost her hair. And she was, she was actually the person, not the embalmer who dressed my mom's hair for the wake. So that was a very intimate thing. Um, And so I didn't know that, honestly, until I had interviewed her, but I did know that she picked out uh, the wig, and I just, I mean, I admire her a lot, but yeah, I did feel like it was maybe too much to go back um, and think about all that until I
0: really was like, maybe this could benefit me in some way. And she's the first person who very directly points out the connection between one's appearance, especially for someone who's experiencing cancer and the loss of hair and the debilitation it takes on your body and the connection especially on the impact of cancer on a woman and so this idea that hair is attached to a woman's beauty and maybe value or self-worth and how important it was for her debbie to help your mother take back some of that control
1: Right, exactly. And it's a lot about identity too, like feeling stripped of an identity when you lose your hair, feeling kind of distant from yourself. And I was able to see how I, this sounds a little bit cheesy, but I was able to see how I was distant from myself too, in a way um, with my depression, just feeling like I was disassociating maybe. Um, And so there were themes that definitely overlapped when I was uh, talking to Debbie, but also kind of reminiscing on the role she played um, in my
0: mom's care. And so you said that there was a, a part in that chapter where you talked about how you took your anger out on your own hair when your mother had none, the sense of guilt, I guess, or this reflection back, seeing her having a shaven head or and, and you f- having a full head of hair. Is guilt an accurate description of what you were feeling or what else might you have been feeling?
1: Yeah, guilt is accurate. And I think part of me was feeling guilty, like not just for hair, but for feeling like I wanted to die when, you know, my mom just wanted to live and she was fighting for her life. And so I think the difference in our perspectives was what something that made me feel even guiltier, honestly. I know that's not maybe the right way to look at it, but that's how I was looking at it. But yeah, I I remember just thinking about my own appearance a lot. Um, I lost weight frequently and then gained it all back. I was kind of just like changing my image very frequently um, because I think just because I didn't really know who I was, um, but also because I was just rebelling against
0: what I thought was kind of unfair, an unfair thing that happened to my mom and so this this concept of image and identity it's interesting because that shows up you know in all of the conversations you have but with respect to your own one of the things that you did as well is you talked about how you spent hours creating fake Facebook profiles yeah. Which made me think about, you know, all of those those right wing extremists and like oh, no. Russian coal farms, right? <laughs> oh, um, my God, and yeah. I thought, well, so so is <laughs> is that what's behind people embracing no. conspiracy theories is this desire of course, it's a desire to escape your reality right. and to try on different looks. Yeah. But to basically not be present to what's in front right. of you in your own life. And exactly. so just, was it effective? Did it work? How how, how did yeah, it, no. that experience impact <laughs> you?
1: Um, that's a great question. And I didn't make that comparison before. I mean, you're very right. <laughs> it's a form of escape, but also like when you feel extremely desperate, I think. Yeah. I think it it provided me with distraction, which I guess you could say is was helpful to an extent, but in the long term, not at all. Um, in the short term, I felt like very immediate satisfaction from escaping in that way, and yeah, I think it, I realized after many years
0: that that was not um, fruitful for me or for anyone involved. <laughs> um, so, so but, were you? So, I mean, just out of curiosity, were you in these identities? You were taking on both genders, different ages, different yeah. races.
1: Oh, mostly men. I don't know why.
0: Ah, so I, I mean, to to me, I mean, we did a whole series on sex, womanhood, and femininity, and there's mm-hmm. concept of tomboyism came up mm-hmm. in the history of tomboyism, and it's often been the case that girls under you know patriarchy escape mm-hmm. to male identities. Oh
1: yeah,
0: you know, or the facade of such to gain power as a way mm-hmm. to reject femininity where they may feel weak.
1: Oh, interesting! Yeah.
0: yeah, so I'm. I'm. That's interesting that you took on male identities mainly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. Like I was exploring my sexuality too, so I think that played a role, maybe, in what gender I was presenting as or as my fake person was presenting as. Um, yeah, I think I was just trying to experiment with different identities, but also kind of figure out what what was interesting about other people that I liked and, and wanted to emulate. And so it allowed me to do that to an extent, but I wouldn't recommend it as a
0: <laughs> a treatment. And, and so, you know, even with that, you wrote about how you still had a lot of physical, obviously, uh, symptoms, um, mm-hmm. such as you talked about your impulse control disorder, like pulling out mm-hmm. your eyebrows, obviously your anxiety and your depression. How when you were experiencing the, these other symptoms, which, you know, you feel, feel, feel free to elaborate on them. Were you aware at the time that they were symptoms or were you kind of just so enmeshed in it that you didn't realize it was a problem?
1: Yeah, I think I was, I was so enmeshed in it. And I think, I don't know, there are a lot of connections that I was able to make upon reflection between identity and, you know, doing things like pulling out your eyebrows and, those were connections I was definitely not making while I was, you know, struggling with it. But yeah, I think, I don't know. I think I was just looking for ways to release in some way, like looking for just tiny feelings of gratification. So that provided me that for, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. And to me that was enough because it's just getting day by going through each day, getting by, so
0: if you can fill in the gaps or something, um, that's just what it was feeling like to me at the time. And so that concept of filling in gaps also is a theme <laughs> that runs through. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, when you talked about being in the moment and not realizing, not reflecting, not, um, not knowing until later, until you had time to reflect, was it because you didn't have the skills or the tools to reflect? Was it because there was no therapist there to help build those skills? What were some of the reasons behind what made reflection happen later?
1: I think being so uh, attached to the feeling that I got from pulling out my eyebrows was blinding me to any sort of reflection. I was just so focused on let me get that feeling back that I was not able to even see it outside of that small act. And I think... You know, I was seeing a therapist at the time I was doing that. So even as I was writing my book, I had trichotillomania and was plucking out my eyebrows. Um, So I had more tools to deal with it than I would have if I were 20. But at the same time, I did feel like it was something to hide and something that I should be ashamed of. So I had all these, again, feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, and I wasn't really sure what to do with those. And so I think that just led me, honestly,
0: to do So the guilt, I think I, I understand it's survival guilt. And where did the shame come from? Is it shame that you were grieving and not like you hadn't moved on? What was what was the basis of that shame?
1: Yeah, I think it was it was shame that I wasn't as far along in my life as I imagined myself to be. So it was kind of like a shame of not fulfilling my
0: my own expectations for myself, if that makes sense. Was it your your, your mother's expectations of you?
1: Yeah, actually. Yeah. It was it was my expectations of myself that were yeah, pulled from my mother. So, yeah, it was uh, I don't know. I feel like I I was just ashamed to even be depressed and to have to, you know, ask for help. And I was just ashamed in general that I just had no like zest or motivation for living and that was something that I really was looking for and wanted to get back.
0: And it's interesting how when you talked about Debbie your mom's hairstylist you described her as um she's Italian American mm-hmm. right and you described her in this and w- one um part as someone who values quote unquote action over introspection and so for me when i read that i thought hmm isn't that kind of i mean in so many ways i mean there are different things that you've said that i think you know, quote, encapsulate the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's (laughs) also one of them. You know, it was the first one where I thought, well, isn't that the problem that we have as humans, this misconception that that both are mutually exclusive, you know, that we have to choose? And how can action happen without introspection? How can purposeful action happen without introspection?
1: That's a great point. Yeah. And I think, a lot like that comes up later too, just the value of busyness and how you can distract yourself from introspection. But I think you're totally right. I don't. I think they go hand in hand. For me, I was mostly viewing it as I was very inactive, and my depression kind of made me at times bed like bedridden. And so I felt like here is this person in front of me who just feels like she has to keep doing something in order to kind of stay afloat. Um, and that was something I envied a little bit, but you're right. I think they definitely have to go hand
0: in hand and it's not one over the other. So the next chapter with the priest that you interviewed, mm-hmm. so you grew up Catholic, I'm guessing. right? And mm-hmm, yeah. were you a regular uh, attendee of church yeah, every week? Yeah, we
1: went every Sunday and then I went to a Catholic grade school. So we were in church, I think it was like every Tuesday, just during the day. <laughs> so okay. We were so the,
0: the concepts <laughs> In Catholicism, around sin, obviously, mm-hmm. was I'm guessing a big part of your life and your identity. Yeah, and that's where the shame comes in too. Um, so it all connects. Well, I, yeah. I think even those of us who are not Catholic, you know, or even atheists and agnostic in this society, there's so much shame culture because yeah. of patriarchy. Yeah, because of conforming to gender roles, if anything. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but putting that aside, so the priest, he, um, Father Dorr, I thought what was interesting about your conversation with him is, you know, number one, your observation that there was such vulnerability in him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, this was true, I think, for all of the interviews that you had. In many ways, what you were seeking from someone, they actually received from you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that.
0: <laughs> and so, you know, Father Door, you described him as someone when he described his relationship to God and when he was the first time when he was angry with with God was when his mother died when he was young, mm-hmm. a teenager. And 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 in that description you talked about seeing the fear in his eyes which reflected back the eyes of a child. Right. Yeah. I just thought that was isn't that part of us always the part that gets in the way that that isn't nurtured enough by us as individuals is us as a society that keeps us from building the skills that we need to deal with grief and loss in society Mm -hmm. in our lives
1: right and i think there is such with him there was such like an emphasis on certainty like he when he talked he his voice is very loud and he you know his voice boomed in the church i remember talking about it echoed throughout the pews but yeah so i think there was this kind of at least initially in the conversation a kind of hesitancy to say like he's unsure about certain things or he is childlike in certain ways i think he would not be willing to necessarily acknowledge that so yeah i think yeah we all have that kind of unnurtured side and mine I felt especially like empty when thinking about my uh, relationship to religion and just kind of the negative feelings that it uh, kind of imposed on me I guess you could say but um, there was something that when there was a shift when he became a little bit less certain and you're right he did he it seemed like he was just kind of figuring things out
0: I mean, I, I mean, in many ways, isn't that what we want from the the leaders or the I, I don't want to say it's, I guess leaders is the best f- yeah. term leaders in our lives that you know they show their humanity. Yes, right, and, and they show us how we can use our humanity to to move through life smoothly.
1: <laughs> yes, and and that it's not reassuring to be certain necessarily, because it's like, if you're questioning things then you're just made to feel sort of ostracized. So, yeah, I think that was the part of it where I felt I actually related to him. Um, and I didn't, you know, previously in my life or in my, in that interview in, or in my childhood um, when he was our the uh, priest at my uh, grade school.
0: And, you know, there's one part where he talks about father door talks about how for him Dealing with issues of health and death is the hardest part of being a priest. Mm. And again, you know, it just, I think it's a difference in philosophy because as a spiritually seeking person, Mm -hmm. I would want the spiritual leaders in my life to help me better navigate life, (laughs) not (laughs) moments of death, right? Like life and and health. When he was referring to health, he was talking about illness, more about like people who are in less control. Right. But I think the whole point is that we need to, you know, those t- two things are definitive. Mm-hmm. And and yet the part that's in between, like this canvas of life, that's the part that everybody struggles with, like right. how to be a good person, what it means to be a good person, you know, how to show up for friends and family who are ill, who are in need. And so the, that was strange to me to read that that was more challenging for him
1: than mm-hmm. to help
0: people navigate everyday life.
1: Right, yeah. And and I know I said like just now that I, I wanted him to be kind of uncertain, but not about that. So I'm kind of contradicting myself, but I think you're right that we want some sort of assurance, at least in terms of like, yeah, how to be a good person, like you said. And yeah, it just felt like, he was struggling with similar things, but I don't know, wasn't actually viewing them in the same way either. Like, I don't think he would view um, depression in the same category as like an illness like cancer or something. And I I don't think they should be in the same category necessarily, but I think there's still like a stigma around depression that you can't talk about it. I think he has a very narrow mind uh, when thinking about illness in general. Um, So that was also confusing to me. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so it, it revealed to me a lot of um why we seek guidance from faith c- leaders and and why we are uh disappointed and and f- when they fall short. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of and there's a lot of finding your voice in that too, like asserting yourself and um you know, I was really shy when I grew up um, so I remember hearing him give a a homily and it, his voice was just so loud and so sure. I just remember thinking. Um, and so I think for me as this very insecure person, I was like uh, wanting to emulate that or not necessarily emulate it, but just admired it. And so that's why I remember like thinking maybe there's something here maybe the answers are in religion or um, just cause this man is, is, you know, so sure. And yeah, it's, disappointing when it's it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz when you realize who's behind the curtain but yeah it's it can be very disappointing when they're when you bring up things that they don't have concrete answers to yeah
0: the the description you gave of his voice and his um the volume Mm -hmm. uh his tone and his volume they Mm -hmm. are traditional markers of you know dominance right and um when I think of people with that kind of the way you described, I think of um sort of either relatives or or former supervisors, employers who used those tactics to assert their their um to assert their their omnipotence but also mm-hmm. to reassert the hierarchy. So it was kind of right. like, it It made me think of like roaring, you know, because some people oh, speak yeah. and they, they sound like they're roaring.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. And I feel like that is a very gendered thing. Like women are taught socialized to be, you know, quieter, um, courteous. Um, so yeah, I think there is a huge uh, difference in who's allowed to even speak
0: in that volume, I think. Right, of course. And so what do you just dis- Describe yourself now as, in terms of your relationship to religion.
1: Um, I'm not religious. I, I, I'm like you spiritual and I, you know, I want to believe that if I die, I'll see my mom or, you know, um,
0: but I'm not involved in organized religion. And so then this next person, uh, or actually two people that you interviewed was at your mom's, uh, hospice, mm-hmm. uh, um. The the two people were the administrator and the nurse who took care of your mom, Pam and Abby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, here this conversation I think was, was definitely a, a mirror, but a sort of um, distorted mirror. <laughs> can yeah. you de- can you describe what, what I what yeah. how that was the case?
1: So I went in thinking um, that this hospice nurse that I was about to interview was the one who had worked with my mom. Um, Turns out that wasn't the case, um, but she didn't realize it. Um, So she was telling me facts about my life that weren't actually facts about my life. She was like, I remember your house. Um, It was, you know, a one story and she's getting all these details wrong. So I kind of have to make a decision in that moment. Like, should I continue with this? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a very anxious person. So the idea of stopping her and saying, you have this all wrong, was totally overwhelming to me. So I made the decision to say nothing and to, act like what she was saying was true. Um, So you're exactly right about the distorted mirror. I think I was seeing a lot of my own anxieties reflected back at me in like just allowing the conversation to continue without correcting her. And I I still learned a lot about uh, palliative care and uh, what it's like to be a hospice nurse. But I also learned about like, blurring the lines between fantasy and reality. Um, I wrote a little bit more about escapism in this chapter, too. Um, so that had some overlapping themes with the first one. And I was mostly thinking about what it means to to kind of like admit or to be in a reality where maybe other people aren't, to live in your own bubble, I guess.
0: What did you think about what Pam said? Just when she was reflecting on caretaking in general, and she was making comparisons between oncology, surgery, and hospice nurses, and how um, hospice nurses, in a way, like, you know, what what she is, has mm-hmm. it better because they get to help patients decide what they want and, and create choice in their life. So it's less frenetic, unlike emergency room nurses, where they just go, go, go. Mm-hmm. But um, it's also less intense Mm -hmm. and serious, like surgery nurses. Right. Uh, And and so she said, you know, she described it as being able to give patients the choice of what they want. And it was more about wellness, which I thought was very ironic because when you're in hospice, there's nothing about wellness there. It's it's this resignation that, you know, the end is near.
1: And it's your... Like she made it sound like it's, you know, the patient has has all this autonomy and stuff, but it's like the patient is dying. So there are very limited options, honestly. Yeah. So I I definitely saw some of the contradictions when she was saying that. But I think a lot of what she was saying, too, made me think this is a very obvious thing. And I should have realized this way before (laughs) conducting the interview. but her loss, her experience as a hospice nurse of loss is is much different than obviously a close person or, you know, family member to the person who's dying. And she's able to kind of continue on with her life. She said like no loss had really even affected her Uh, in her job to the point where she had to like stop working and until she lost her father-in-law, which she talks about a little bit, but yeah, it's just kind of this removed loss that I think is interesting. I personally couldn't deal with death and dying every day. I think I would, that would take a toll on my mind and body, you know, more so than it's already been through. So yeah, it's, it's admirable, but at the same time I see how you have to kind of, remove yourself or maybe disassociate a little bit too. I think
0: you use the word compartmentalize. Yeah. In some ways, compartmentalizing helps us. It's a skill, it's a tool Mm -hmm. to help us get through with the daily losses that we experience that are inevitable. But on the other hand, how can we experience it if everything that we see and experience is reflected back to us by other people's experiences? that are similar. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so I thought it was interesting how you you didn't want to, like part of what you sought from her is this mirror, uh, mm-hmm. also a window into what your mother's last moments were like. Mm-hmm. And yet you were hesitant to hold that mirror to her to let her know that she was not talking about your mother.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I went along with it to the point where I was, she was like, "Oh, how how was Rockford High School?" That's not a high school that I went to, and it was like, <laughs> I was I was just at that point so deep into it that I couldn't <laughs> escape. So yeah, you're right. It's it was
0: yeah, holding a, a distorted mirror, and so then it brings up the question: What responsibility do we have as individuals to help others build these skills? Mm-hmm. You know, so that as a society collectively, we're better able to interact with one another, because mm, if you're yeah. the only one with these skills, nobody else's, and they're the ones like you were saying, you know, on Facebook, creating fake profiles as a way to <laughs> deal with their grief and trauma, right. that's not healthy. And that's not helpful to us and to our journey. Right.
1: right? Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know, I think she was just trying so hard to relate to me and, and to feel a connection, I could I could sense how badly she wanted us to be like bonded over this. And so that was part of the guilt again, uh, that I felt, which is like, I need to affirm this person in some way. <laughs> At least that's what I felt like. Um, and I didn't feel like I was in a position
0: to question her version of events, even though it's my life. <laughs> I'm just wondering, to what extent your particular experience of ha- conducting these interviews and your response to that that dilemma, I guess, social dilemma is gendered. Mm. You know, as women and girls, we're socialized to make other people comfortable. Yes. Right. Yeah. Especially men. And yeah. so we're not we're socialized to put aside our own comfort and our own needs, et cetera. And if it were, you know, if you had a brother who was doing these interviews, conducting these interviews, would he have been like, okay, you're not the right person and turned to Pam and said Pam can you please you know find who's the right nurse that right. you know took care of my mom right. yeah i think that's
1: really important i think it's all it's again about finding your own voice and being assertive enough i think i'm anxious and that played into it but i also think yeah i wasn't social i was socialized to make other people feel comfortable And honestly, hospice workers are too, like their whole job is to make people feel comfortable and there's uh, gender disparities in caregiving, um, who the caregivers are. So I think the whole idea of like um, making sure someone is set and has their basic needs met, but also feels a connection to you is very gendered.
0: So, so then let's move on to the next person that you interviewed, Mary Lee Turk, who was the mm-hmm. estate planner, but also happened to work with your mom when your mom was yeah. an attorney. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting because that was the first chapter where that, where the term sexism came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary Lee Turk, you know, talks about how your mom, when she was an attorney, and of course she experienced sexism in the workplace as attorneys Mm -hmm. in that era when they first came, came out of school. Mm -hmm. Um, So what was, what was your experience like talking to Mary Lee Turk?
1: I remember a lot of similar things that my mom was saying about it. Just the idea of men in equal positions, asking women to get coffee for them. um, And just Feeling like you're not valued. My mom talked a lot about that, and honestly, one of the reasons I think she quit law was due to that. Although she wasn't, you know, that upfront about it, she always said it was because she was raising children. But yeah, I think there there's this kind of se- there's sexism in the law, of course, but in in just who's practicing again and who's like again allowed to be assertive. And so, hearing what she said brought up some memories of my mom and think and similar things that she had talked about with regards to her previous job
0: and and in many ways like this person was someone who had a window into your mother's life that you weren't able to experience yeah. personally
1: yeah exactly like the 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 side of her that I wasn't even alive for like the personality that came out maybe in a, in a workplace that I would never be privy to
0: and and that was the chapter where you talked about your father's sort of guidance to you that Mm -hmm. his way of dealing with his grief was um, repetition and busy Mm -hmm. work. You referred Mm -hmm. earlier to busy work. So creating rituals, I guess, but also filling in the emptiness, right? And that's actually, I mean, that's probably instinctively what a lot of us do so that we don't have to be in the moment and feel our feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how effective was it for your dad? Because he spent a lot of time <laughs> remodeling the house after your mom passed. Yeah. Did you think it worked for him? Did it show up in other ways? Sublimated in other ways negatively.
1: To be honest, I I think he a part of him shut off emotionally, and maybe still is. Um, I don't. I think he filled his time uh, with so many things. That, you know, maybe it was the idea of action versus introspection. He didn't have any introspection. So he was kind of just, or at least he acted like he didn't have any introspection. You know what I mean? So he, yeah, it, it just felt very like we must do this, this, this. And then that also made me kind of feel ashamed again, because if you're not filling your space, your time um, up with certain things, you're not keeping busy, it feels like a personal problem rather than just maybe a side effect of depression and not wanting to get out of bed. And it's viewed as laziness instead of anything. So
0: a character flaw.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think that was where we differed. And, and I honestly just wanted to connect with him. I felt very isolated from him because he was so focused on work. And yeah, I think he left very little room to show his emotions as well, I think obviously, men are conditioned not to show emotions as much as women, but, yeah, he
0: could have been a little bit more open, I think. Is he still alive now? Yes,
1: yeah.
0: Have you talked to him about your book? has he read it?
1: He's very supportive. He's giving it to everyone in his friend group. yeah, he we're trying. um, he's it's hard to talk about depression with him. It's hard to talk about even my mom, I think. there are certain things that, it, you can sense that he feels a little bit uncomfortable about them. You know, we've made some strides in our communication, and we've tried to
0: to kind of patch things up so has the book been helpful for him, and has it given him an an uh, an opening to really reflect on his feelings now?
1: I think so. I think it was really hard for him to read. Like he's always been very sensitive it just was a matter of whether he was able to communicate that and kind of show that he, he wanted to be involved in our lives. We just assumed things about each other and kind of spied on each other basically. So, yeah, I think, I think it was upsetting for him to read kind of like my history with depression as I didn't really open up to him about it at the time. And so that was hard, but I think it started a conversation.
0: So that's great. I mean, that it, Mm -hmm. You bring up a lot of very common patterns, I'm sure, in many relationships, in many families where, you know, men are socialized, not only to not build the vocabulary for describing their feelings from the moment they're children, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. to not feel their feelings, to hide their feelings, to sublimate their feelings, potentially through action, like you were saying, through sports, through violence, through, you know, whatever else, through work. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that goes to the theme of not being authentic, you know, not being able to access who they are, their humanity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I I don't know. I think my dad has always been, like, he's very true to himself in terms of, like, what he values. Um, But I think you're right. He doesn't often have the language to express uh, what he's actually feeling on a deeper level. And I think he maybe just maybe also besides not having the language maybe is um, kind of too afraid probably um, or just doesn't want to bring it up. I'm not sure. So I don't know. I think he, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> do you, do, have you ever suggested to him that he join you in one of your sessions with your therapist? Um, He's
1: asked if we should, go to therapy together. Um, And I've said no. So actually he initiated, which was good. And he, you know, that was him trying to get more involved. And I said, no, I think just because it's still, I still haven't, there's so much I haven't told him about my depression. And I guess I still am a little bit ashamed and, and I obviously, you know, want him to be proud of me and stuff like that. So I I have those feelings of like, you know, this might be letting him down in some way. So I haven't uh, taken him up on it, but he has suggested.
0: Well, I mean, that sounds really promising that he took the initiative. And just as someone who's been in family therapy before, I think the goal of family therapy is to help each other better communicate and connect And establish a relationship with one another so it's maybe less about your individual for lack of a better word shortcomings Mm -hmm. and more about uh, how to build skills to communicate with one another based on your own history with each other right yeah so I I I would encourage you (laughs) to reconsider (laughs) you know if at some point you're I, I
1: definitely think that could we could benefit from that I think I you know I'm I'm always thinking about it. I'm just, I don't know. I'm still just hesitant to do it. it just seems like it would be very hard, but, <laughs> but you're right. It's worth it. And, and I think about the book too. I think he kind of saw me interviewing all these people and maybe felt, I'm, I'm just putting words into his mouth because he didn't actually say this, but maybe felt a little bit, Kind of left out, or like I didn't come to him enough for guidance and encouragement, and I definitely think I could have done a better job of that um, myself. So I'm not, you know,
0: saying this is all a communication error on his part. Um, It definitely has to do with me too. I'm gonna just observe that communication isn't about right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're being, I would say, unless you're being deliberately oppressive Mm -hmm. in your choice of words. Or delivery in a content. But otherwise, you know, it's where you're at and what you're capable of. And so it's just about recognizing that so that you can build your skills to communicate more effectively so that your intention is aligned with what you're saying, with the delivery of the content that you're putting out there. Oh, I
1: see. Yeah. I like that framing of it. I think that makes more sense. And I think honestly, I should even just tell him that because I think he, he views it as kind of a right or wrong thing too. He, he views it as like, I'm warring with him. If I'm, you know, trying to tell him we need to go to therapy or not me, but trying to tell him, we need to talk more about my depression.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of, it goes back to this framing of like patriarchy, which is, (laughs) you know, which of course is the point of the podcast and the work that we do is uh, recognizing that, you know, these are all social constructs. even the concept of mental illness, like there's a, a theory that all other than physical illness, which again, is also very tied to, you know, to our personal right, yes. experiences, that all forms of or most forms of mental, quote unquote, illness are just manifestations of um you know, unmet needs and trauma mm, uh, mm-hmm. and And so if we have the ability to to look at our lives, you know, with that lens of understanding that this is an experience that's hurt us, that's created Mm -hmm. um, emotional or spiritual violence to us, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, that certain behaviors and actions are harmful, even when they're not physically, you know, inflicted, then we can recognize that our emotional and psychological reaction, and maybe then, you know, its physical manifestation is all in response to that.
1: Wow, yeah. I never I mean that's because
0: that. uh, you know, I come from the experience of being a domestic violence survivor, so there's lots and lots of research around adverse childhood experiences and trauma and its impact on physical health, mental health, mm-hmm. all of these things. And, and too many people in this society misdiagnose or they misperceive symptoms of trauma as illness when it's really about injury. Wow. And so I think that that's why we need to build a culture of um, mental health awareness, too, and and uh, have these conversations. That's why your book is so important. Thank you. For, for this <laughs> process. So let's, this last person that, you know, we started off with is the embalmer. Let's mm. turn to <laughs> the embalmer, um, Charlie. It's, you talk in this chapter about your aversion to endings. <laughs> Can you give us the example? Can you talk about the example you described with regard to films, how that is a manifestation of your version?
1: Yeah, um, I get, I used to get uh, really bad panic attacks whenever a film was over. Um, like maybe when I was 19 to 21 or something, um, there was just a period where I, you know, had to leave before the credits rolled. And I'm not, you know, I think that has a lot, there's a lot of ties to that. <laughs> yeah, but it was hard. The idea of wrapping this project up especially was hard because I felt like if I wrap it up, then I might not have this uh, another opportunity to talk at length about my mom and to talk about my depression even, um, you know, unless I write a whole nother book about it. But yeah, I think I just felt like I was maybe putting my mom to rest in in finishing this book. So I think that created a, another uh, anxious or it created more anxiety for me.
0: So you know, I'll just share since you talked about Harry Potter a lot and you know, I <laughs> I was a fan of very much a fan of Harry Potter too when the books <laughs> came out. I actually worked at Scholastic when the last book, Set Book Seven, came out and and I never read the book <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want it to end. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I just thought, like, okay, like if I read the book, there's not gonna the story's gonna end, and and there's gonna I'm gonna have to face and confront the possible, I guess, death or uncertainty of these characters mm-hmm.
1: that were so yeah. beloved
0: to me. So I totally relate to that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's different because books like that, there's always some sort of resolution. And I think with just the idea of like going on a grief journey there, there wasn't necessarily going to be a resolution. I'm still suffering from depression and anxiety and chronic fatigue and all that. So I think the idea of like trying to come to some sort of, I don't know, overall theme or thesis maybe through all these interviews was very daunting. But yeah, I think at first, initially, at least I approached it like books. I'm like, this needs to have some, or like fiction books, this needs to have some sort of, Ending that's satisfying. Um, then I realize maybe it's more honest if it doesn't. Um, or I'm I'm kind of saying, you know, I learned this, but I'm still in the process of figuring out who I am and figuring out how to relate to people.
0: I mean, but I think you know, wouldn't you say it's true that you you are? I mean, you started off your book before the whole book. You had like a quote from the Hours, right, hmm. which really talks about the cycle of life. So you basically acknowledge before you even start the book. Right. That, you know, endings are openings, that this is a repetitive cycle. And so I guess intellectually you accept it, but you're still struggling with accepting it on a personal level.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, the general idea I can totally accept. I just I I feel so kind of desperate still in my depression and in my mental health issues that it was like a
0: desperation to to get some sort of resolution. So I think that was part of it. And when I was reading it, I, I just thought it didn't help that there were so many people who were part of your mom's dying process who had these views that basically weighted almost her death more than her life.
1: Oh, wow. You yeah. Know? So
0: in the Embalmer chapter, Charlie talks about the casket being a quote unquote good investment. And I just thought, and you, you know, you obviously remarked on it and didn't agree, but I just thought, like, why isn't your life a good investment? Why not spend that money when you're alive to build the relationships, to connect with people so that when death comes, it's not so hard. We've already, there are no regrets, in other words.
1: Yeah. And I think that was part of my own issue was maybe looking at people. I was so obsessed with people who were kind of around the hours of when she died um, that I wasn't even, you know, I was blinded and wasn't even looking for people to really elaborate on like stories that of her life. And yeah, it was more like the dark side of everything. But yeah, I think it's interesting his perspective because he, it's a very morbid kind of, I mean, he, all he knew of her was death, um, because it's not like they had a relationship when she was living. So I think that's really all he could communicate. Um, and maybe that was, you know, wrong of me to even have expectations other than that, um, because he didn't really know her. So.
0: And, and you know, this, this idea that you shared in the chapter around how referencing Charlie's belief that funerals and wakes are an exercise in play acting, right? So mm-hmm. that concept of pretending or not being authentic and putting on this facade that matched the physical facade, the makeup that he put on to embalm a body. These are all things that sort of get in the way of connecting that actually extend and Deepen probably the grief.
1: Right. And I think that came up, you know, with the hospice nurse too, the idea of just like faking it, you know, for the purpose of appeasing someone, you know, I definitely felt, I, I remember having those feelings at the wig, like I was smiling and, you know, super- outgoing even though I'm not in real life and just became kind of a different person so there are all these contradictions in what I was receiving what information I was receiving from the interviews it was like you know I'm trying to find my voice but at the same time it's muffled in these ways or distorted um, and I'm acting
0: differently and that's I think why it was so hard for me to figure out who I am I guess so this ties back to sort of the, the theme of feminism and how this podcast is about teaching feminism and because feminism is about encouraging people to discard these human constructs that are harmful mm-hmm. to us that don't allow us to be fully authentic. And so in many ways, I see this book and your interviews as a journey to also deepen your feminist self.
1: I 100% agree. Yeah. I think it's by the act of publishing this book was me being honest with myself, more honest than perhaps I'd ever been and honest to maybe other people about what it is really like, um, to, you know, have depression, but also to be grieving, you know, so many years after someone dies. And I think there's kind of this, um, power in, even just the act of writing a sentence and not deleting it, like saying, you know, this stands on its own. I'm I'm going to continue with this. Um, I believe in this enough to put this out. Um, I think that was very powerful for me. It was like, here's my voice and I'm not actually shying away from it this time. So I think, yeah, you're exactly right. I think the idea of making sure your voice is heard, even when kind of all these people maybe or institutions even are trying to kind of suppress it. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think I found it in the act of writing basically. So the idea that like, even just talking about it right now is helping me and it can be a constant conversation and you don't need to shut down every kind of uncomfortable topic.
0: So since you've interviewed these individuals have you had an opportunity to talk to more people who were part of your mom's life and, and have they, how have they impacted you and added to this, you know, these um, collection of stories?
1: Yeah, a great question. I think a lot of people have interviewed, or sorry, have emailed me being like, you know, I remember your mom. I just remember this like very small scene of, you know, even people that were not well acquainted with her Um And that's satisfying to me to see it's like what you were saying about death versus life, the celebration of a living part of her, the joyous parts. And so this, you know, talking about death has opened up the conversation to to talk more about life. But also people have emailed me just talking about their own kind of mental health journeys um, or, you know, their family's mental health journeys um, and grieving processes. And I think that's... You know healing too it's just it's a matter of it's, it can be hard and overwhelming to hear like a bunch of people's brief stories and you know I definitely I'm very empathic <laughs> I'm an empath yeah so I think I take that kind of in um but it's relieving to not have to stop talking about anything if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm So we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I think kind of just basic humanity. I think we're seeing so many people, especially women in minority groups, so Black women especially, losing their lives because we're ignoring Um, their needs as a society. I think even what I was talking about with like the quality of care my mom received, she was a white woman and, you know, Black women are uh, at an increased um, disadvantage for receiving uh, quality care. Um, So I think just the idea of, you know, I don't know, like being alive. (laughs) Um, That sounds very stupid. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But I don't know, just the the idea of just owning and having control over your body and to feel like you can assert your voice without being suppressed. What gives you hope? Stories. I think um, just hearing from other people about their just personal struggles um, and how they've overcome them feeling like you can connect with someone and being just very nice,
0: Um, just basic human decency and kindness. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start, or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I think we could do a lot more of, a lot more listening. Um, I think there are a lot of people whose voices we just overlook or maybe just, you know, pretend are less significant. And so I think a part of the process is hearing what people have to say, but then also making sure, you know, it's important, uh, making sure their needs are adhered to and listened to. So I think, I I guess I would say maybe just uh, having more dialogue with everyone, especially minority groups. So women, but also, you know, racial minority groups um, and just trying to get their needs met, but first, you know,
0: you can't do that without hearing what their needs are. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you for sharing your journey with us and your conversations. And I wish you the best with this book. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.